0: Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. I often say that disease is an expected result of our adaptive mechanisms trying to simply cope with our lifestyle. In short, our culture has hijacked our evolution. And I'd like to underscore this notion by leveraging my great, 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 great times 20 grandfather who lived as a hunter-gatherer in 10,321 BC, in the area of East Africa that we now call Kenya. His name was Fedge Ansark, which is somewhat unimaginatively. My name spelled backwards. Fedge's lifestyle and ecosystem mirrored those of hundreds of generations. And across vast swaths of time, human biology evolved in relationship to this environment. Now, I have virtually the same exact biology as FEDG, but our cultural conditions could not be more different. Now, this change in culture has created evolutionary mismatches. Our hard-wrought advantages have become disadvantageous. Now, there are many examples of how culture has rendered the adaptive maladaptive. And Today, I explore the modern cultural artifact of loneliness, its knock-on impacts, and I introduced the concept of social fitness as a means to combat social isolation. Okay, let's begin by traveling back 12,000 years or so and visit the conditions in which our ancestors evolved. It was a nightly ritual for Fedge and his tribe to gather around a crackling fire as the sun dipped and the air cooled On most days, resources could be gathered across four to six hours, which left plenty of time to gather and eat and share the stories of the day. Communal life provided camaraderie, but it was also essential for survival. As some members of the group kept watch at night to protect fellow tribesmen from predators, other members hunted and foraged for game, plant, fruits, roots, tubers, and seeds for the clan. Tribes moved around together as resources in one area became picked over. This led to collective family planning, as tribe size needed to be kept small and nimble and stable. Mothers breastfed their babies for extended periods of time for myriad reasons. Breast milk served as free food and under ancestral conditions of hunting, gathering, and high infant mortality, Infant survival depended on the immunological, hormonal, and nutritional factors found in maternal breast milk. Prolonged breastfeeding also served as a means of natural contraception, as the practice decreased female fertility. This contributed to a very stable population over tens of thousands of years. A communal child rearing was commonplace The babies of Homo sapiens are unique in their sustained and unqualified reliance on their caretakers. Compare this dependence with other animals. Uh, Most normal foals, for example, will stand within 40 minutes to one hour of being born. Baby robins jump from their nest when they're about 13 days old. It takes them another 10 days or so to become strong flyers and completely independent birds. At six weeks of age, a human baby can see about 12 inches away and it will be another year before it gets up on its legs and walks, and not particularly skillfully. Now, this phenomenon may be due to an evolutionary tension. While the timeline is not particularly clear, it appears that Australopithecus, an early hominem, took their first steps as committed bipeds between two and four million years ago. Bipedalism resulted in skeletal changes to the legs, knee, and ankle joints, spine, toes, and arms. Most significantly, the hips tapered and the pelvis became shorter and rounded. In female hominids, this led to a narrower birth canal. Now, the history of the human mastery of fire is equally mangy. The oldest unequivocal evidence found at Israel's Qesem cave dates back 300 to 400,000 years. The ability to control fire altered the course of human history in various ways, the most significant of which was cooking. Now, prior to cooking, it was not uncommon for hominins to spend a good part of the day chewing. Our primate ancestors give us a window into the time allocated for mastication. Chimps chew for 4.5 hours per day, and orangutans clock 6.6 hours. Modern humans spend a mere 35 minutes every day chewing. Now, uncooked food needs a tremendous amount of breaking down and pre-digestion. Further, the metabolism of raw food requires a tremendous amount of energy. Now, cooking completely changed that equation. The chemical transformations induced through cooking made it easier for our bodies to digest carbohydrates, proteins, and fats, macronutrients. It reduced the need for incessant chewing and expanded nature's pantry to include foods that were previously inedible or very difficult to digest, including grains, tubers, maize, and meats. With the advent of cooking, hominins unearthed a surfeit of excess calories. And this discovery went to our heads, quite literally. The average brain size of Australopithecus was 400 cubic centimeters. Between one and two million years ago, the brain size of Homo erectus doubled. Currently, Homo sapiens boast brains of approximately 1,300 cubic centimeters. Now, when it comes to energy, our brains are greedy devils, pilfering 20% of our available ATP, even though they comprise only 2% of our body mass. Now you might presage where these two convergent evolutionary trends were headed. Bigger brains and narrower birth canals led to increasingly difficult and perilous childbirth. And it's theorized that this resulted in shorter gestation periods as babies needed to be born before their heads became too large. In comparison to other animals, one could argue that human babies are born premature. And certainly, they are helpless. And given the utter reliance on others and the conditions of hunter gatherer life, babies required multiple caregivers. The phrase, it takes a village to raise a child, originates from an African proverb and conveys the message that it requires a community to provide a safe, healthy environment for children to develop and flourish. Evolutionary pressure led to this collective child rearing. By dint of our own biology, we are obliged to support each other. Fedge and his fellow tribespeople couldn't survive in single-family households. Of course, communal living is the manner in which we existed for the overwhelming majority of human history. We lived in large camps, depending on one another for food, childcare, and virtually everything else, all without walls, without doors or picket fences. Now, one day recently in Topanga, Dr. Gabor Mate said to me, if the entirety of human history was reduced to one day, we lived communally for 23 hours and 54 minutes of it. A community is an adaptive advantage. Humans are not the fastest or the most muscular creatures on Earth. What makes humans unique and shot us to the top of the food chain is our ability to cooperate flexibly at scale. Modernity has mischaracterized the notion of survival of the fittest. The phrase has come to connote a world of cutthroat competition in which only strong individuals will succeed and the weak will perish. But survival doesn't favor individualism. Our ability to survive and thrive is bound to our capacity to function collectively. The fittest and the happiest of us are those who can foster deep social connections. When we say things like, it's just human nature to be selfish and egocentric and look out for one's needs first, we confuse nature With culture. Yes, it's our culture to be individualistic, but our nature is communal. And when we defy nature, it rarely works to our advantage. The last 200 years in the West have been dominated by the sanctification of the individual. Yuval Harari chronicles this trend masterfully in his book, Sapiens. Romanticism implores the individual to follow one's heart and satisfy their wanderlust. Art bequeaths beauty to the eye of the beholder. Commerce yields to the customer who is always right. Liberal democracy gives every citizen a vote, most of the time. Even physics points to the individual subjectivity of experience. Our modern heroes are the rugged individuals, the Marlboro men, the captains of industry, the star athletes, the winners of social Darwinism. But individualism comes with a cost. We're living increasingly alone. We are atomized, living in boxes, within boxes, within boxes. Our children barricade themselves in their rooms, within fenced houses, inside gated communities. According to the Roots of Loneliness project, 52% of Americans report feeling lonely, while 47% report their relationships with others are not meaningful. 58% of Americans reported that they sometimes or always feel like no one knows them well. And astoundingly, single or not, 57% of Americans report eating all their meals alone. Fewer than three people live in the average American household. What are the physiological and psychological impacts of loneliness? Well, people are generally aware of the most common health indicators and risk factors. We don't always heed our own advice, but we understand that poor diet, smoking, excessive alcohol use, sedentariness, and obesity pose risks. What we might not know is that social isolation is just as predictive of death. BYU professors Tim Smith and Julianne holt Lundstad have conducted research that demonstrates that loneliness poses the same risk of death as smoking 15 cigarettes a day or being an alcoholic. Their more recent study also reveals that the risk of social isolation surpasses that posed by obesity. Unfortunately, more people live alone today than in any time in human history. These data inspired Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, the country's top doctor, to declare loneliness an epidemic and author a book on the topic. Loneliness directly interacts with the wiring of our nervous system. Being lonely induces a stress state through increasing the human perception of threat. Our brain innately knows that there is greater security in groups. And we grok this reality as a product of direct experience. Imagine the feeling of getting lost in the wilderness by yourself versus losing your way with a group. Your limbic system innately understands that your chances of survival is greater in a group. Well, modern society can feel like a wilderness for many people. The downstream impacts of this chronic stress include chronic fatigue, brain fog, high glucose levels, gut dysbiosis, systemic inflammation, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. The persistent activation of the sympathetic nervous system creates hormonal imbalances in the body that can lead to these conditions and others. The overactivation of steroid hormones produced in the adrenal glands such as cortisol, And adrenaline can spike glucose levels lower immune function and disrupt the balance of gut flora sociogenomics is an emerging field that studies epigenetics in relationship to social environment in other words our gene expression is in some measure dependent on our social interaction individuals who suffer from chronic social isolation have different transcriptome profiles for genes related to immune system factors, including elevated expression of pro-inflammatory cytokine genes and depressed expression of antiviral genes. Chronically isolated individuals are also more likely to develop inflammation-related diseases, thus providing a plausible biological connection between social variables and disease risk and mortality. And when threat perception increases, we begin to question people's motives. Trust erodes and our focus shifts inward. Under perceived threat, humans develop an excessive focus on self. In this sense, loneliness is a downward spiral. The lonelier we are, the more we seem to believe we are unworthy and unlikable. As our self-esteem plummets, we are more likely to seek out self-destructive external agents to assuage our perceived deficiencies, find relief, and create a sense of connection. Turning to the comfort of alcohol or drugs becomes a way of coping with feeling alone, unloved, and rejected. Substance use are anesthetics for pain, but of course, they provide only short-term reprieve. Substance abuse helps to avoid confronting problems, delivering a false, brief sense of security. It's a vicious cycle because when the drugs and alcohol are not present, all of our emotions come flooding back in. Loneliness and addiction are bi-directional, fueling each other in equal and horrifying measure. As addiction worses, many people damage relationships and lose friends further aggravating loneliness and isolation. Without support, it is incredibly difficult to cope with those feelings without drugs or alcohol. So the cycle continues. Loneliness is both an effect and a cause of addiction. Of course, we are aware of the psychological impacts of social isolation. Isolation is leveraged by our justice system. The most severe punishment doled out short of a death sentence is solitary confinement. Now, we're still getting our collective heads around the long-term effects of the forced monasticism imposed by the COVID pandemic. Certainly, we've seen a dreadful increase in suicide rates and drug overdoses. That said, rates of loneliness were skyrocketing prior to COVID putting its wicked foot on the accelerator. In the absence of in real life interaction, we have resorted to creating connection from behind screens. However, study after study suggests that social media actually exacerbates feelings of isolation instead of fostering social bonds. Online interactions lack the nonverbal cues, the physical presence and the emotional intimacy that are essential for building and maintaining meaningful relationships. Social media can also lead to feelings of comparison and inadequacy, as well as feelings of isolation due to constant FOMO, fear of missing out. Now, loneliness can be both objective and subjective. Objective loneliness is a reflection of social isolation and having very few, if any, social connections. More prevalent, though, is subjective loneliness, which stems from a feeling that the social bonds that you do have fall short of your social needs. Now, we can be around people and still feel very lonely. We've all likely had the feeling at one time or another of being lonely in a crowd or at a party. The Reverend Michael Beckwith once told me in an interview, Loneliness is often a loneliness with yourself. We've probably all been in conversations where the person with whom we're speaking is looking over our shoulder, scanning the room for someone more quote unquote important to ensnare. A lack of self-worth and the incessant seeking out of the approval of others inhibits the ability for people to be present and to connect and this is a form of loneliness with oneself and it's important to delineate between loneliness and solitude the latter is a form of chosen aloneness that can be the source of replenishment and feel extremely connective in fact meditation can elicit a sensation of oneness and interpenetration with the world in a deep meditative state The separation between the external world and your internal reality often dissipate. The sense that you are sitting somewhere on the edge of experience, looking in at it, dissolves. This transcendent feeling is also the product of immersion into nature or into creative expression. It's ironic that the pathway to developing greater connection to the external world is often forged in periods of solitude. Ultimately, we seek a reality in which we complete ourselves and don't feel lonely when we're alone. And at the same time, we then bring our confident selves into the world around us. Robert Waldinger is a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and the director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development. The world's longest and most comprehensive study of human happiness. Launched in 1938, the longitudinal study followed 238 college sophomores and their progeny across 85 years. When I asked Robert for the number one determinant of self reported happiness and well being, he responded without hesitation hands down, the strength of one's social connections. While Fedge enjoyed his moments of solitude and introspection, he had very little occasion to be lonely. He felt a profound sense of accountability to the tribe and in return, possessed a deep sense of belonging or being accepted as his authentic self. Just like Fedge didn't need to work out to remain strong and flexible, Fedge's social fitness was simply a product of his lifestyle. Our modern culture is peppered with the trapdoors of loneliness. We need to treat social fitness like cardiovascular fitness and actively engage in the activities that foster greater connection and mimic the circumstances in which we evolved. So let's explore the protocols for social fitness. Now, for me, 100 pull ups, 100 push ups, 100 sit ups, these are my daily fitness non negotiables. Of course, I'll work in some tennis when scheduling allows. Chasing yellow fuzzy balls like a golden retriever might be considered play, but fortunately it's also fantastic for cardiovascular health. Many of us have fitness regimes. We commit to the gym or the track or the court to keep our bodies strong and flexible. But what about the atrophy of our social muscles? While I've just described modernity's scourge of loneliness, Given that social isolation is as detrimental to health as alcohol or smoking 15 cigarettes per day, we best have a social fitness regimen to accompany our biceps curls. Now, loneliness is like thirstiness. It's a signal. It's a reflection that your social connections are not meeting your social needs. And too many of us have no one to confide in, to call in an emergency or with whom to vulnerably talk through problems. Isolation breeds mistrust and keeps us in a state of constant fight or flight. Improving social fitness requires the same kind of training and maintenance as physical fitness. So here are 12 elements of a social fitness regimen. Number one, five minutes every day. In 1987, AT&T released a commercial set to the jingle, Reach Out and Touch Someone. Billy had gone off to college and is feeling lonely and nostalgic. He pecks out his home number on the analog keypad and his mother picks up. Billy is initially lighthearted, but his mother senses his wistfulness and Billy feels heard and seen. Stevie Wonder sang, I just called to say I love you. Now, this notion seems quaint, as if it could only happen on a rotary phone. Life is simply too busy now. But take five minutes every day to connect with a relative or a friend. Like the vegetables in your garden, your relationships cannot thrive unless they are nurtured. If needed, you can set an automatic reminder on your incredibly smart phone. Speaking of your phone, answer it. Pick up when a loved one rings, even if you can't talk. Instead of exchanging an endless stream of text, just tell them that you'll return their call as soon as possible. In-person connection. Don't mistake virtual connection for the real thing. Despite the ever-increasing opportunities to connect online, Americans report having fewer friends than they did decades ago. Connection relies on more than the content of what someone is saying. We evolve to dance in conversation. We read body language and vocal intonation. We connect through eye contact, mimicking body movements, nodding along. And of course, through offering each other touch and physical affection. Random acts of kindness are spontaneous and unpremeditated gestures of friendliness and generosity. They're often simple, a smile to a stranger, public recognition of a coworker, picking up litter on the street, or leaving a good tip. These deeds may seem small and token, but what is the human condition except an aggregate of billions of small actions? Cultivate compassion. Identify someone else's suffering as your own and actively work to alleviate that pain. Compassion is an experience of interbeing. When you viscerally feel someone else's pain, you transcend self and feel connected to something bigger. Empathetic joy. Experience joy solely for someone else's joy without envy or jealousy. When we witness the achievements of others, we often project our feelings of our own unfulfilled potential onto that person. And this results in envy or resentment. Don't compare, celebrate the accomplishments of others. Serve, Service to others through volunteering or providing assistance plays a crucial role in social fitness. Serving others can increase empathy and understanding as it often involves interacting with individuals who may be different from us or in situations unlike our own. Serving others can provide a sense of purpose and personal fulfillment. We can find deep satisfaction in knowing that we are making a positive difference in the lives of others. Service activities often involve collaborating with others, which can create opportunities for social connection. This can help individuals feel more connected to their communities and can foster a sense of social belonging. Build communication skills. In my 20s, I ran a record label and our music was big in Japan. So I traveled to Tokyo many, many times for business and my trips were packed with meetings with record executives i would ramble on and on passionately extolling the virtues of a new record or signing and when i finished there was nothing silence of course at first the lack of response was discombobulating and i felt the need to awkwardly fill the emptiness and eventually i learned that the pregnant pause was actually an indication of respect. My counterpart had listened thoroughly and actively and was now processing an appropriate response. The Japanese listen to understand, not to respond. When someone else is talking, we tend to be formulating our rejoinder and only partially listening. Try to pay full attention to others without any compulsion to reply. Show others that you are invested in their feelings through active listening. And at the same time, practice clear, assertive and respectful communication. This includes both verbal and nonverbal cues, such as body language and appropriate tone of voice. Foster conflict resolution skills. You can practice the middle way by bringing opposing positions together. Reframe the concept of winning away from trying to elicit an admission of defeat and toward fostering compromise and cooperation. Admit when you're wrong and say you're sorry. Learn to forgive and to move on. Give the gift of presence. In the age of the attention economy in which everyone and everything is vying for your conscious attention, the most precious gift you can give anyone is the present of presence. Be all there. Being there. While our children and loved ones may never listen to us, they rarely fail to imitate us. Oftentimes we want our influence to be explicit and direct, but never underestimate the immeasurable value of just being there for your loved ones every day, of leading a life of example, of walking an honorable, if occasionally jagged, path such that there are footsteps in which to follow. Solitude. Ironically, deliberate solitude is a means to social fitness. The French philosopher Blaise Pascal wrote, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. So many of us are simply not comfortable alone. We immediately fidget or grab our phone. However, connection to self is a bridge to social connection. The Golden Rule is a spiritual axiom shared among myriad traditions. It instructs us to love thy neighbor as thyself. Yes, this maxim asks us to be charitable and altruistic. However, in order to fulfill this timeless equation, we must also love ourselves. We must belong to ourselves, accepting ourselves for who we are. This is no easy feat but it begins with being comfortable in our aloneness. Eventually, in fulfilling our own needs, in becoming complete, love can become something given, not taken. Social fitness is this delicate balance between extroversion and introversion. Many of us feel a tendency toward one or the other. Some of us are more outgoing, socially confident, and gain energy from being around people while others are generally quiet, introspective and generate energy from spending time alone. Extroverts are often comfortable in group settings and enjoy engaging in social activities. They're typically more assertive, expressive and tend to enjoy seeking out new experiences. Introverts often prefer one-on-one conversations or solitary activities to large social gatherings. They typically spend more time thinking and reflecting and are more reserved in expressing their feelings or thoughts. The most socially fit among us are ambiverts. They balance a desire and ability to bond with others while fostering the powers of introspection and finding connection in solitude. Social connection is inextricably linked to psychological and physiological well-being. So make social fitness a priority in your life. Okay, thanks for listening. Please subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcatcher. For more information on how to cultivate balance in your life, go to onecommune.com trial and sign up for a free 14-day membership to Commune's course platform, which features more than 120 courses with top doctors and teachers across physiological and psychological well-being. Remember, balance is not a static condition physiological balance exists across a spectrum and is in constant flux in relation to its environment you don't control all of the elements of your ecosystem but you do have agency you can adopt the protocols that induce healing the movement toward wholeness okay that's all for today my name is jeff krasnow and i'm here for you